I would like to talk to you about the economic future of the country because I remain convinced as I have. I was convinced of this in World War II. I was convinced of it during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nothing can basically stop America. That, of course, was the sage of Omaha, Warren Buffett. And looking at the U.S. market's recovery since the COVID-19 sell-off in March, he's been proved very right. Since the depths of the fastest bear market in history, U.S. markets have recovered to even headier heights than before. And at the heart of that recovery sits America's unrivaled technology industry, which now accounts for a third of the value of its stock markets. But all is not rosy in the land of the brave and free. COVID-19 has unleashed a wave of social unrest that has been bubbling up for some time. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. Such is the anger that a democratic president is looking increasingly likely in 2021. And that could mean higher taxes and more regulation of big tech that stops the markets in their tracks. Meanwhile, there is the small matter of a continuing trade war with China. Where this ends is anyone's guess that the rhetoric from the current occupants of the White House continues to ramp up. There and then, we got hit by the virus that came from China. Could all this add up to a reversal of fortunes for the powerhouse of global stock markets? We'll be talking to Mary McDougall to hear where the next leg up for US tech may come from and how to play it. And we'll be speaking to our in-house analyst and regular podcast guest, Phil Oakley, to find out why he thinks the US is still the best place to invest and which companies he thinks will continue to thrive come trade war, second wave or presidential upset. I'm John Human. And I'm Megan Boxall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So, Megan, they say everything is bigger in the uh, United States, bigger and better, but that's certainly true of its stock markets. Mm, yeah, they, uh, the US stock market is, it's just, you can't really compare it to, to other stock markets in terms of its size. It, it combined market capitalization, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ is their trillion dollars. I mean, it's, it's so much bigger than those two, those two markets alone are so much bigger than their equivalents in, in London or in Europe or, or, or even in Asia. And actually, there are more stock markets as well. It's not just the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. There's, there's plenty of other ones as well. It's just an enormous market. And the companies in it are huge as well. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Alphabet, their market caps are all over a trillion dollars. Apple alone is worth more than the entire DAX 30. And Apple and Microsoft are bigger than the entire FTSE 100. They're they're just, the size is is extraordinary. And because it's so big, it's it's hard to ignore the US. And And actually, not even just from a, if you're investing directly in companies, the size of the US economy, which is something that I will... We'll talk about with Philip in a in a in a little while is is so significant to companies regardless of where they're domiciled. Most companies in the UK rely on some sort of growth or or, or supply chain or, or something from the US. I mean, it's interesting you say that that companies in the UK rely on buying from the US, but but this is particularly true of some of its biggest companies. You know, it, it hasn't just grown to be this big because it is a big market that that its stock markets exist in. It has companies on them that are globally dominant. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And the kind of companies that it's quite hard to imagine life without them now. And there are very few companies in the UK which have that sort of status. But really now, today, if you think about 
a life without Google and even to a certain extent without Amazon. It's quite hard to imagine that. And and I think when a company becomes that that important to to life continuing as we know it, it it's uh, it's unsurprising really that they've they've become so big. And people people do worry about these these large companies though that they dominate their indices, which I think is something we're going to talk to Mary about. Um, that they will become targets for regulators, for politicians, because they are so big. Is this is this yeah. something investors need to worry about? Well, it's it's so hard to tell. I mean, regulation is obviously a part of. It's always been a part of markets, and every time companies do start getting slightly too big or too dominant, they the regulators it catches the eye of the regulators and that's certainly what's happening at the moment and it's especially happening in in europe um european regulators are, are not happy about the um how dominant companies like amazon and google are and they they say they're anti-competitive but it's a really it's a difficult argument to make about companies like that because actually who are they anti-competitive against because historically competition laws have supported the consumer the variety of competition laws that exist in, in the US and, and elsewhere were set up to protect the consumer to ensure that you get cheap, the best price available. Um, and, it, and if you have a, a dominant company, they can charge what they want. But actually, Amazon does support the consumer. Amazon's the company which is probably at the heart of most of the, uh, the regulation arguments. What the competition regulators are worried about is the fact that they are stamping out other industries. The book selling industry, for example, Amazon went into that market, lowered the price of books to, to hardly anything. I mean, you could get books so cheaply on Amazon 10 years ago and high street bookstores don't exist to the same extent as they used to. And that, that's, that's certainly the Amazon effect. And now Amazon has got a dominant position in that market. They've raised the price of the books again. And the, the issue that they have is that Amazon has the capacity to do that kind of market dominance. And it has that because it's a, it's got two la- layers of its business. It's both a, a seller and a, and a marketplace. And that, that means that competition laws may need to change if, if, we are, if they are going to clamp down on companies like Amazon and, and like Google as well. Google's facing the same sort of issues. It promotes its own products or it used to promote its own products up the top of Google search. Um, but the competition laws currently don't exist that will allow for these companies to be, to be regulated, to be tapered. So it's going to be difficult, which is why investors maybe need to take regulation arguments with a bit of a pinch of salt because it's going to be very hard to regulate these companies. I mean, it is interesting because the European Union obviously went after Microsoft um, at the turn of the millennium. Um, but Microsoft is now the biggest company. So that, that regulation, you know, although it happened and I think they were forced to split out parts of their business uh, at the time, it hasn't really stopped the momentum that, that these tech companies have. Well, yeah. And I mean, the same is true of Standard Oil when they split Standard Oil up. Parts of Standard Oil still exist and are still absolutely enormous businesses. I think if the underlying businesses are good enough, no amount of regulation is going to stop them from being good investments. And that's certainly true of Amazon. I mean, if if Amazon split into two or three companies, they're all great companies. It, it, that shouldn't be a thing that stops people wanting to invest in invest in them because i mean yeah like you say microsoft is a prime example recently and yeah it took 10 years for it to regain its ground as the as the largest company in the world but it is now and actually when when you think about a, a company that really there it's hard to find a reason not to buy shares in microsoft it's just amazing it's a phenomenal company and it's proven that regulation doesn't necessarily need to stop growth 
It, I mean, it is interesting, you know, that tech is, has developed in this way from the US. I mean, is, is there something in the attitude uh, of investors towards these companies, of the, of the way that they're, in the way that they're managed, that, that, has, that has allowed them to flourish in this way? There was nothing stopping, uh, you know, a tech company from developing in Europe or the UK. They just haven't. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a different mentality, isn't it? I mean, I don't, you don't need to look much further than the founders for that. Jeff Bezos is, I know he, uh, he's not everyone's favourite person, but he's, he's a fantastic company leader. He's, it's a founder, Amazon's a founder-led company. I mean, Microsoft was to, until very recently, and Bill Gates still has a big role in, in, within Microsoft, same as Google. The founders only stepped down recently. And, and, I mean, and Apple, Apple too, I mean, you know, Steve Jobs died. And that's why that is no longer essentially a founder-led company, but it's mm-hmm. not far from it. No, it's not far from it. And Tim Cook was around at the beginning. Um, and he, I mean, he, he was widely credited, even though Steve Jobs was the, the brains and the inspiration behind the, behind the early days of Apple. Tim Cook was, they said he was sort of the Steve Jobs level head and he, he got the company going in, in, the, right, in the right direction. But, but yeah, they, these founders, they, their priority is growth and, and growth to a, to a certain extent is growth at all costs, which is why, they reinvest all of them have reinvested their profits back into into further growth into innovation and rather than something what we have in the uk which is excessive dividend payments and also the culture of actual investors as well in the uk we like property we like income and in the us it is about growth i mean silicon valley is apparently an extraordinary place where people they're just seeking innovation the whole time and it, it is it's a it's a different culture and maybe maybe it's gone too far and I mean some people do argue that capitalism in the US is, may, is maybe tipping slightly too far in favor of these of these large conglomerates and and uh, and ending up with the, these hugely dominant companies and and that could be an issue and and maybe that's to a certain extent what's led to such civil unrest but actually if you're looking for really inspirational companies you Silicon Valley and, and the tech sector is is the uh, is the place to look. I mean, is there more to? We talk a lot about the tech companies uh, for obvious reasons that they are absolutely vast. Is there more to the US than that? There might, what's the depth of the market like? I mean, there there are thousands and thousands of companies there. Is it does it does it have the same strength in other sectors? Well, this is an interesting conversation that this came up in our conversation with Carson Block because I said. Oh, the US is amazing. There's plenty of growth there, and he and he said actually no. If you take out the tech se- sector, there's not a huge amount of growth. Which I actually I I don't actually agree with that. I think there is yeah okay. There's there has been stagnation, and I mean the growth coming from companies like Walt Disney, for example, and and other areas of the media sector. Although Walt Disney has had a pretty bad crisis. Well, yeah, the, these companies, are, it's slow, but the, I mean, looking at it recently, you can't really say it, it's been tough for everyone apart from the tech sector. But actually, when you compare them to what you're getting in from Europe or the UK, the quality is, it's just not comparable with, uh, with, what, you're, with what you're getting here, unfortunately. And that is partly the culture of, of cash is king and, and reinvest for, for growth and, and 
Yes, there's there's been acquisitions in in all sorts of sectors in in the US, and there's more reliance on acquisitions in, out, outside of the tech sector. I mean, in the tech sector as well. But um, but it's still, it still it still seems like higher quality growth than what you get from the UK and from Europe. And then obviously your other option is Asia, and and Asia is a difficult market to to really trust, as we discussed last week, is the growth you're getting from China really, really true? And and Asia presents all sorts of other issues. So so really, I mean, yes, the tech tech is dominant, but it's not the only thing about the US, which is a good place for investors to be. And their pharmaceutical companies, for example, they've got an unbelievable pharmaceutical industry. That's partly because they've got so many pharma companies. They've got so many of everything that they strive to be the best. They strive to innovate the most. And, and that breeds a culture of, of continual excellence. I mean, it sounds like a great place for stock picking, um, which I'm sure we'll talk to uh, Phil Oakley about shortly. Should we talk to, to Mary about uh, how you can access this, this incredible market using funds? Mary, how do US funds compare to UK funds in terms of performance over the last 10 years? Yeah, hi, hi Megan. Thank you very much for having me. Well, if you haven't invested in... In the US, you're probably likely to be kicking yourself. Um, they've massively outperformed the UK largely because they're dominated by these big tech companies. So over the last 10 years, the so looking at the IA sector, the North America sectors um, returned 260% compared with the UK oil companies, which has increased 90%. Mm. So it's a much bigger performance. And then in particular... This year, um, some of the US funds have had sensational performance. Driven a lot by the, the dominance of the tech sector. Yeah, absolutely. So the the US sector overall has returned nearly 6%. But you've got some funds like Bailey Gifford American Fund and Morgan Stanley US Fund, which are both up over 60%. And that's largely thanks to big holdings in companies like Shopify and Amazon and Netflix and Tesla. Should we talk about ETFs and uh, and and how getting exposure to the US via ETFs and what and the things you need to consider if that's the if that's what you're choosing to do? Yeah, so if you've invested in a in an ETF that covers the US, you've done really well in recent years because the enormous companies like Amazon have had sensational performance. Um, the Nasdaq 100, which is made up of big tech companies, for example, is up 36 percent over the last year, which most US tech funds haven't beaten. Um, but if you invest in something like that, you need to be aware that Apple, Microsoft and Amazon are 30% of the index. Um, and that's the same across the S&P 500. You need to really think about how much exposure you're getting to these big companies. Mm. So there are quite nifty sector ETFs that you can buy for targeted exposure. But... Yeah, you need to look at what's in them. So the S&P information technology subsector has 22% in Microsoft alone and and 20% in Apple. Wow. And companies like Amazon aren't in it, which is that is that because of how they're listed because it's it's listed as a as a retailer rather than a tech company. Yeah, so that's consumer discretionary. Mm. Um and that's 35% of that subsector. <laughs> um, and Alphabet and Facebook are in the communication sector and they make up half of that. So that they are very risky or very exposed to individual companies. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But then and actually that's a, 
a cheap option then for getting exposure to for getting huge exposure to to these companies i mean buying a share of apple for example it, it is it's more expensive than buying an etf yeah no that's a really good point and if you're investing in individual shares that you have to pay foreign exchange charges on most platforms which can end up costing you a lot so it's definitely a much cheaper way to get access looking at the platforms are there any platforms which are, are better if you want to be investing in the us via funds or picking stocks yourself uh yes i th- i think there are so they all typically charge maybe between 0.5 and 1.5 percent for foreign exchange charges but about half of the main platforms actually let you hold foreign currencies so if you use ig interactive investor or iDealing, you can hold US dollars in your account. So you only need to pay your foreign exchange charge on your first trade. And then subsequent ones, you just pay a flat dealing fee, which is usually about £10. Whereas Hargreaves Lansdowne and AJ Bell, you have to pay foreign exchange charges every time you trade. Mm. We'll see the costs ramp up there. Yeah, I actually, I, I did some I did some sums to try and work this out. So if you're investing about £10,000, that'll typically cost you about £100. I mean, cu- currency is, uh, is an interesting um, point when it comes to investing in the US. Do, do, you, do you, these um, uh, ETFs that you're talking about, do they, do they, uh, are, they, are they priced in dollars or, or are they hedged? Or how do they work in that respect? How do you take... You can pick. You can, pick. You can buy hedged ones or you can buy ones that are priced in dollars. Is there, is there an advantage? I mean, do, why, why would you pick one over another? Um, well, currency markets are very volatile. Um, so I think if you think the dollar is going to do better, then you buy one in dollars. And, and if you want to, to send sterling, then you might buy a hedge one. I, you wrote a great piece, actually, on, on the future of tech in the magazine recently. Um, we've talked about ETFs, but I, I think there's quite a few um, uh, sort of active managers who are actively targeting the tech sector, which, which you explored in that, uh, that big theme that you wrote for us uh, at the beginning of the month. Yeah, so there are two that have been hitting the headlines recently. There's Polar Capital Technology Trust and Alliance Technology Trust, um, which have both had really good performance. They're, those two, I, I think those two are great products. When uh, we were looking at uh, building a very basic portfolio, they're, they're really good products. And, and Walter Price at the Allianz um, Technology Trust, he's so knowledgeable on the sector. It's, it, I mean, it kind of comes back to John and I were just talking about, about founder-led businesses. And obviously, Walter Price isn't a founder, but he does know the sector so well. And actually, if you are going to be picking a, a cheap option to, to get exposure to the U.S., but you also want the reliability of a, of a fund manager who knows the sector really well, rather than just buying an ETF, then those trusts, are, are they, they seem like a really, really sensible option. Yeah, you're right. And they've been around for a long time and they've had very good, very good performance. So they're, they're tried and tested. What, what do they do differently than, than the index? I mean, are, are, they, are they sort of seeking out sort of uh, off-piste technology to create a bit of alpha? Yeah, they wouldn't be as heavily weighted um, to individual companies. But they're generally, they can be more careful about looking for profitable companies. And They've got big holdings in Adobe, which I really love because Adobe is just a fantastically profitable company. People generally think it's got a, it's better price than, than companies like Tesla or Amazon. Well, you, you mentioned that Polar Capital had been in the headlines, Polar Capital Technology. What, what, what's uh, what's uh, brought it to everyone's attention of late? 
<laughs> I think generally because there aren't there aren't that many tech specific um, funds or investment trusts in particular, and it's it's sort of up there with Allianz for really good performance over a long time period. So, I mean, you can you can get this concentrated tech exposure. Is is there a danger? Do you think of, of being too concentrated, or is there is there another way to sort of perhaps water down the effect of tech? Um, if perhaps we, you know, some some of the things that we've talked about earlier in this podcast, regulation or, or sort of general market weakness, come along and uh, and kind of hit hit them in a way that we perhaps haven't expected. Is do, do you see that concentration as being an issue? Well, I'm I'm not sure because the US is such a big market. There are many more options you know but when people talk about us tech lots of people just just think about the big names but it's it's much broader than that i was talking to one fund manager the manager of trojan global equity fund and she is it's heavily invested in the us tech stocks but they don't invest in companies like amazon or or tesla or netflix but instead are going for the really profitable companies um they have quite a few payment companies uh they focus on cash flows a visa mastercard so i think i think it is a really big deep market so there's plenty of plenty of ways to play it without taking on that 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 risk that fang risk as it were yeah awesome well thanks mary really uh really good to talk to you great Thank thanks you. mary so it sounds like there's lots of uh, good ways into the US market there through funds and ETFs and investment trusts. But I know uh, individual companies are, uh, are also still a really good way to play the US. Megan, it sounds really like you're very much a, a fan of Adobe there. Adobe is phenomenally profitable. Like it's just, it's barely comparable. So Adobe had a really great business model. Um, obviously, most people know Adobe from the PDF. So they invented the PDF. Um, and then various like photo editing software and all sorts. They've got loads and loads of like graphic software. And most people do use Adobe without necessarily even realizing that they use Adobe. And uh, so when Adobe was founded, it was founded like out of a back shed. Well, they all run out. Well, they all run out of a shed on day one. Yeah, no, yeah, okay. <laughs> so Apple made this takeover offer um, like really, really early on, which is what Apple does. It's what all those these big tech companies do. They buy the competition before they get too big. And Adobe's founders said no. And all of its early shareholders were like, what are you playing at? This is amazing. Why won't you take this off of Apple? And they were like, no, our vision is bigger than just becoming part of Apple. And so then they signed this deal. It was a a licensing deal with Apple. And it meant that they were the first company in Silicon Valley to be profitable in its first year. And that's just been the story of it ever since. And so that licensing deal sort of made the business model. So they used to license out their software. So you'd you'd buy your your two hundred pound license, and it, you'd ha- you'd have it for a year, and that worked really really well until about two thousand and thirteen, and they realised they were getting really uh, it, it was very lumpy revenue, and, and the world was changing, and as technology and telecoms has got better, you don't actually need to buy your physical disc or your physical license anymore. So they were the first company to move into a software software as a, selling software as a subscription. And the subscription model, so so switching from licensing to subscription, it did dent revenues in the first year that they did it, which was 2013, um, because people were switching and they weren't really sure. And, and they lost this big like chunk, these chunks of revenue that were coming every time people had to renew their licenses. So now people pay for Adobe software, as you do most software now, on a, on a monthly rolling basis, which is incredibly sticky and incredibly reliable revenue. So 
So Adobe's software, it's it's subscription business. It comes with gross margins at 100 percent or like 99.8. And that's most of the business. So about it's something like about 70 percent of Adobe's revenue has gross margins of pretty much 100 percent, which means that it's making so much cash. And that cash goes straight back into uh, into investing in new products and innovating. And it is extremely innovative. And the new products that they're rolling out are great. And it also, because all their customers are very sticky, they're able to upsell those products. So new products, they're, they're, all their cash is going into, into building and marketing those new products. And the marketing doesn't cost very much because they're marketing to their existing customers who are not going anywhere. So it's just, it's a really, really incredible business model. And as Mary says, it hasn't been swept up in this tide of of all the big tech that's all amazing. So it is slightly better value than than companies like uh, like Facebook and Amazon and Apple are. And it's growing. I mean, we always try and look. I mean, Algae especially loves to look for a peg ratio of less than one. So a, a price to earnings ratio comparable to the company's growth. And you can get a peg ratio of less than one from Adobe, which is it's growing fast enough to justify a higher earnings ratio. Sounds like a pretty amazing company. I know we use it heavily at work to get the magazine out every week and uh, I don't think we could live without it. There you go. Companies you can't live without, that's, uh, that's what you want, especially if they've got a peg of less than one. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if Phil uh, thinks there's any, any companies that you, uh, you can't live without in the US. Let's find out. Hello, Phil. How are you doing? I'm... All right, thank you, John. We've been talking about the US on this podcast, which I know is uh, a subject that uh, is dear to your heart. We've talked about it quite a bit, actually, over the years. Um, remind us again, what, what, what is it that you see in the US that, that, that makes you think that this is a place where we should be allocating some of our capital? In a very short answer to that is the companies are better and they, can, they have more growth potential. In terms of what's on offer... The range, quality of business, and the ability to to grow. Um, there is just so much more to choose from than you have with UK shares. And we spoke a lot about tech earlier. I mean, when you say there's so much more to choose from, presumably there is more to choose from beyond tech. Tech is obviously a dominant feature of the US investing landscape. What what, what do you look for outside of that that industry? I mean, you could just look through some of the big sectors, you know, big prominent sectors, um, healthcare, um, consumer businesses, um, retail businesses, things like payments. I mean, you, I mean, I don't know whether people count, I suppose people do count payments as tech, don't they? But, you know, I can't buy, I can't buy MasterCard, Visa or PayPal shares in on the London market. And then you have, you know, sort of very interesting companies like, you know, ADP, you know, payroll processing or a share that I share that I like quite well um, is um, Paycheck. You know, they do things like HR and payroll and things like work insurance, health insurance. And they manage it for for small and medium sized companies. And I think it hammers home a theme that, you have American companies which are serving a huge domestic market. You have a population that is getting on for six times bigger than the UK population is a huge domestic market. So even though you've got a lot of companies in America or listed in America that are global companies, 
even even the companies that are just domestic companies um, have potentially a lot of growth potential, and um, that's what that's what makes it makes it such a, an interesting hunting ground. I mean, there are a lot of good companies, as you say, and it is a big market, but. You know, the U.S. stock markets have been powering up and up and up, even, you know, obviously we, we, we had the COVID wobble, which was felt across global markets. But since then, nothing can stop them. I mean, are we getting into danger territory here? Is this a bubble inflating? Are valuations getting stretched? I think the answer is yes to all of those. Um, but I think you've got, to look at, you've got to look at the market. And, you know, the market, the market rally is it's not a broad based rally. You know, if you actually look at something like the S&P 500, there are a lot of shares that are actually down for the year by quite a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how concentrated in, you know, areas such as tech, which is the obvious one, that that the rally has been. But, yes, valuations in, in general are high. That's nothing new. I mean, valuations have been high because of cheap money. And, and low interest rates, and you know you have a a Federal Reserve that wants to make the interest rates on U.S. government bonds as low as possible, and maybe even disappear. And um, that remains supp- quite supportive for American shares, despite what's going on in the economy. And you've seen, you know, you've seen those companies that are perceived to have very resilient profits do extremely well and i think we have you know reached perhaps reached a situation on certain shares um where you start thinking you know how long how much further this can go i think amazon's a very interesting example uh i was looking at amazon actually only yesterday and just looking at how the, the the profit forecasts have trended over the last 12 months and you look at you know you look at like the profit forecast for the end of the end of 2020 the year to the year to december 2020 and they've come down 45% i'm talking about you know I'm talking about eps earnings per share forecast here they've come down 45% from where they were a year ago and yet amazon share price is up more than 50% from what it was a year ago and Whereas you could have looked at Amazon's earnings and cash flows or the projections for, for, for earnings and cash flows, probably even at Christmas or even, even February, and, and come to the view that, okay, the shares are expensive, but there's a lot of growth there and perhaps things will look okay. You certainly, you certainly can't see that now. And it seems to become a share that has been arguably was sort of divorced from numbers anyway but now is completely divorced from numbers and the basically the bull case for amazon shares is that this is a unique one-off business that has got so much going for it in terms of exploiting our changing way of life in terms of retail cloud computing and so on that I dare not own it, you know, or I'm not going to short it. You know, we've we've moved on to almost like concept investing rather than proper sort of fundamental business analysis, profits, cash flows. And I suppose that is 
raising the question whether we are a bubble because you know you and I are old enough to remember 20 years ago when this was the kind of talk that that was that was quite quite commonplace it was indeed and it didn't end nicely but uh that's another story altogether I mean you 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 say you know I mean Amazon I think is a special case as you say um but even in your columns you know you've, you've written about some other interesting businesses that do seem a little bit more attached to reality Microsoft being one of them um, tell, tell us about the, you know, which I think now is the biggest company in the world. Um, what, what, why do you like Microsoft? What is it about Microsoft that 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 you like? And and do you think that you know it it, it remains somewhat you know on the ground in terms of its link to its numbers? Yeah, I think it. I mean, second part. Yes, I think it is. It is sort of on. You know, it's 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 attached to to reality and. And what what could happen? Um, I mean, two two things that, that that Microsoft has really got going in its favour is that it offers it offers a a range of products that help people work remotely, um, not just in terms of software like Office or Dynamics or things like Microsoft Teams. Um, but also the infrastructure that that supports it in terms of the cloud cloud based computing um, platform. But the other thing, and this is more of a sort of simple thing, but very powerful thing, is that it's a software business. A lot of it's software, and if you look at the software and the infrastructure, it's very scalable. And so you know, once you've once you've put the cost in. Once you then get customers and revenues coming into it, it just scales, and you, you know the incremental revenue adds a lot of incremental profit, and that drives the growth in profits and cash flow. And you know if we are if we are you know facing up to a, a changing world where more people work remotely, productivity becomes a much bigger factor in appraising workers, then Microsoft's in a pretty good place, I would say. And um, you know, you can see, you know, you can see how this this is still a company that if the change happens faster than than was previously seen. So, you know, I, I've heard people talk about, you know, 10 years of sort of technology adoption happening in the next two or three years. So you get this huge pull forward of demand. Um, then something like if that happens, then Microsoft profits potentially going to grow a lot faster than people maybe think. And um, yeah, you can you can create a very bullish bullish case for the shares. But you also can tie that up with um a kind of business that's also very defensive that you know people aren't you know unless we get a you know mass unemployment where companies buy fewer licenses software licenses and the utilization of cloud infrastructure collapses you you can take the view that you know the risk of the risk of a profit collapse in in something like microsoft is Quite slim. You, you, you mentioned there that you know the risk of mass unemployment, and you, I mean, you also mentioned earlier that you know um, the economy in the US is not doing too well. 
obviously as a result of COVID. But I mean, what do you feel the economic backdrop is like for shares at the moment? Or do you think it's so bad that they'll just keep chucking money money at it and pushing the stock market higher? I think that last bit has, has largely happened. You know, I think I think that sort of central bank chucking money at it support, I think a lot of that's probably done. And I think it could be quite hard for the for the market in general to move to move on from here anytime anytime soon. Because I think the economy is pretty horrible. And um I actually think it's been horrible for years. And I you know I'm talking the last 30, 40 years. And I and I say that based on just how particularly the American working and middle classes have just been hollowed out at the expense of big business. You know, in terms of and I say that just basing on the view that they're take-home pay of the average American worker um, adjusted for inflation has gone nowhere probably since the early 1970s. Um, and, the, and the difference in terms of demand to buy stuff has been made up by borrowing money. And, you know, that is a situation that a few more bearish or more cautious commentators out there have gone on about for a long time. And it's hard, I find it hard to disagree with, with the risks of the, that they highlight, you know. But all by, at the end of the day, you know, it's very easy for us to all, to all become distracted by numbers on a screen and things going up and down. But actually behind this is, you know, these are businesses selling goods and services to people and the ability for those companies to keep on selling the same amount, let alone more stuff, depends on their customers having their customers or their customers' customers, at the end of the day, households, having cash, spare cash in their pockets. And that's that's something that has troubled me for quite some time, but we just seem to keep on going on. I just feel like um, it's starting to catch up with us, though, and COVID has perhaps been an accelerant in, in, uh, in that process. And we've got a presidential election coming up this year as well. I mean, this could, uh, this could throw the cat amongst the pigeons for markets. What do you, what do you make of the outlook there? Well, I, I was actually looking at something earlier. It was on uh, the proposals that Joe Biden has, has put forward. And, you know, they talked about things like, you know, a $15 an hour federal minimum wage. I don't know what the minimum wage is in, in America is off the top of my head. But I imagine $15 an hour is probably more than what it is now. And also, you know, taking taking a tougher, tougher line on competition issues. So we're going to see more sort of antitrust scrutiny of of companies so you know if you if you believe what you hear or read it seems to me that the, the consensus view is that joe biden is going to win and i and i think actually I, I i'm not convinced that he will win don't rule out don't rule out people going into the polling polling stations and voting for the status quo if they think that joe biden and 
perhaps some extreme, you know, more more sort of, should we say, left wing people that might form part of a Biden government are going to come after their money because that's what it boils down to a lot. And um, so I think it's very inter- it's very interesting that the politics, the politics side of it, it may not go the way that people think it's going to go. But if but if you know Biden becomes the president. Uh, who knows what it means for corporate America? The initial, the initial view, probably not as good as it is now. You know, particularly if you get thing, you know, all this money that governments have thrown at, you know, the coronavirus and the lockdown, it's got to get paid for, and that's a big issue. This in this country, and um, you know, someone's going to have to pay, and um, sooner or later that will become uh, a focus of people's attention. Potentially big tax rises, potentially big uh, tax grabs from uh, from the corporate world. Yeah, well, that's what. Yeah, I think that's what people will ask for. I think you'll get people asking asking for wealth taxes as well. Um, whether they ever come to pass, I, I don't know. But it, but it is a great big cloud of uncertainty, I guess, that's going to be lingering over over the U.S. market for a while now. But you know the market. The market has climbed this war. You know this. This it's sort of held up in the face of all these concerns and worries. And you know betting betting against the market has so far proven to be a bad thing. And that's that's interesting because you know you just wonder how much complacency there is out there. You know people people are probably loath to sell off because they think that. You know the Federal Reserve will just keep the show on the road, particularly particularly in these tech names. You know, I, I don't see a lot of a lot of people scrambling to sell out of tech at the moment. Um, and you know, for the last twenty five years, Federal Reserve has done its best to underwrite underwrite the, the the stock market. I mean, this is not you know this is not great you know a great backdrop. You know, it's highly speculative. Verging, verging on the complacent, but in the short term, it might prove to be right. Let's let's come away from that and focus on something that we do know about, and it's something you've written about in your magazine column this week, and that is um, the worth of management. How much do should we value the role of management in the success of companies? And I guess that's a really quite interesting question to ask in the context of some of these fantastic tech companies that have grown so big. How much of that is a management story? Some of some of it undoubtedly is. Um, and t- tell us your thesis as well behind behind management and why it matters and how we can apply that to the US. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a rule. It's a rule that can be applied across the board. I mean, my my view now is that you know when I started out doing all this nearly what quarter of a century ago, it the the real sort of concept of shareholder value was the real. You know, yeah, we run our business for shareholders, and I think that's a very discredited uh, way of thinking. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at businesses now that do well and are going to do well, I'm looking for cust- customer-focused businesses and management. So I, I want to hear about how, if you look, you know, you know, we talked about Amazon. One of the reasons Amazon is really successful because it just serves its customers so well. You know, one, one of the companies, that I like in America a great deal is Costco because it because it just has a tremendous focus on the customer 
And it, it is it is businesses that go out to to solve either solve something, solve a problem, or make things better for customers. That is, and it, and it, and this is what this, this relating it to your question about management. It's about the culture that the management instill into the into the organization. Now, what is what does this company exist for? Is it you know, I've seen some terrible examples in my time of companies that have been totally focused on the shareholder, that customer services just and staff morale has like gone through the floor because it's all about the next quarter's earnings per share or the management bonus. I look at, I, I've seen some great examples of, of companies that have taken completely the opposite view and have had this real focus on the customer and just getting closer and closer to the customer that have ended up to be fantastic long-term investments. And, I, and it's about trying to, trying to sort of get a feel for the, for the culture of a company and how and management has a key role in setting, setting the tone of that culture and setting the direction of travel as regards the culture of the business. Now, that doesn't mean if you've got a really bad business with bad economics that changing the culture is going to turn it from a bad business into a good business. So the quality of, of a company's products, its industry positioning, its competitive positioning is still, I think, the predominant factor of whether you're going to end up with a good investment or not. But the captains of the ship or, or of the of the of the aeroplane play a role in, in steering it to its diet to its destination. And it's 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 a fascinating subject. Um, and one that I, I I'm pleased to see to pleased to see that's changing. Um, because you know, without cut without and I mean from the shareholder to the customer. And it sounds daft. You know, I, I remember having this discussion 25 years ago with my boss, and I've always, I've always held the view that businesses that look after their customers will ultimately serve their shareholders well. But, you know, management consultants, you know, trying to go on about, you know, running businesses for shareholders, um, if you, you, you can do that, but if you do it at the expense of customers, and, and I think a lot of businesses have, have made that mistake. Um, you know, Boeing, for example, is a great example. You know, it's, it's, um, it's spent more money on buybacks for shareholders than investing in R&D with tragic consequences. Um, so that, that, that is essentially, in a roundabout way, my kind of thinking on this. Yeah, and you, but you, I mean, you have got lots of examples of very successful large businesses in the US where, where the culture seems to be right. They do just seem to be good at that sort of thing. There seems to be enough companies out there that have got culture right, got the leadership uh, formula right, as it were. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Good chat. Thank you, John. So as we've touched on several times in this podcast, the social, economic and political aspects of the US are hard to avoid especially at the moment, and it is important for investors to understand them. To help explain the situation and what is going on in America at the moment, I have spoken to Philip Ryland. 
Hi, Philip. Thanks very much for joining me today to talk about the US. Why does the political situation in the US right now matter to investors? It matters now because it always matters because we're talking about the world's biggest economy, the world's biggest economy, which um, continues to grow relatively fast compared with um, compared with uh, Western Europe. Um, so it's an economy which, uh, if you're a serious investor wanting a, a diversified portfolio, you simply have to have some some of your capital in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And why? Why is that such a significant? What I mean, as you say, politics is always a consideration for for investors, I mean, especially in a market as big as the US. But why is it so significant right now? Well, we're coming up to a, a rather important um, presidential um, and uh, congressional election in November, um, and uh, we're asking ourselves: Is this the end of Donald Trump? Will Donald Trump get another four years? We will be able to stand another four years of Donald Trump. Uh, in that sense, it's a you know, it's a pretty big election, and it's an election being held in a weird time, because even in November, we're not quite sure how geared up the U the U.S. economy will be, and the U.S. We're not quite sure what sort of an election it might be. Yeah. Uh, it might be an election very heavily reliant, for example, on on postal votes. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting consideration because then it also again comes back to social media and that and, and the tech companies and and their role is continually being talked about in mm. in influencing uh, political decision making but then they they have a there are potential repercussions for for the big tech companies if we were to if there was to be a democratic victory because of because of the fact that there looks like there would be tighter regulation if if uh, if we get a democratic president yeah, um, I don't think the tech companies would want um, a controversial outcome of the election um, uh, with fingers pointing at them. That really wouldn't be terribly good for them. Um, similarly, a democratic victory won't be great. How bad it will be is difficult to say. Uh, there's always talk about regulation. One day regulation, extra regulation may, may come to come to pass. Uh, but you have to bear in mind that um, Congress is not really, you know, Congress is not terribly functional. Passing controversial laws in Congress is just terribly difficult. And uh, even if the Democrats won Congress um, itself, um, sorry, won the Senate itself, they already have uh, the House of Representatives, even if they won Congress, it still wouldn't necessarily be very easy for them to pass controversial legislation. And actually... Even if, even if they don't win, and even if we get a, even if we stick with the Republican, um, a Republican president, and which is, I mean, as you say, another four years of Donald Trump, that actually still has uh, a potential read across for the tech companies because there's, I mean, as you say, it's it's business as usual, whatever, whatever kind of uh, of government we get in the U.S. Uh, yes, the tech companies aren't going to go away. Um, the effect on the stock market indices would be fairly substantial if those, you know, if the four biggies went into a sustained bear market, then you would see that in the indexes really quite noticeably. Um, whether that would really, to what extent there would be a read across between that and their, to their corporate performance is, is another matter. Mm. The other, obviously, the other consideration of, with the political situation at the moment is the 
is the the Trump China situation and and I mean the US China situation in general is is the relations aren't great but but I mean it, you can't deny that that uh, Trump is probably inflaming the situation. Uh, yes, uh, I mean in a speech uh, to his faithful the other day, he he's no longer calling um, COVID nineteen the China flu, he's now calling it Kung flu which, you know, is, is jolly witty and all that. But I think he mentioned it four times in the speech the other day, Kung Flu. Um, so, you know, Trump, because this is what he does, he's trying to inflame the situation, he's trying to make his supporters angry, he's trying to deflect attention from himself. Uh, and, you know, we can understand why he's doing that doing that at the moment. Absolutely. Deflecting the, the his handling of coronavirus or, or onto China, I mean, it is having repercussions and we're seeing it's having repercussions on companies already. And that's even without, I mean, major, major sanctions being passed. Actually, but actually, I mean, a democratic victory may, maybe wouldn't even be, I mean, apart from the fact that we probably wouldn't get so many uh, Kung Flu refer- references. Um, it's, uh, I mean, this, the, the relations are not, that it's not looking great for the outlook for the China-U.S. relations, regardless of what kind of president we have. Yeah, that's true. Uh, if there are, you know, if there is one thing on which um, I simplify and exaggerate now, if there is one thing on which uh, Democrats and Republicans in Congress can agree, it is to bash China. So, in that sense, it may not matter too much who is in the White House, whether it's uh, Joe Biden or whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Donald Trump. If it were Joe Biden, then one can assume that uh, foreign relations between the U.S. and China would be they would be normalised to the extent that they would run on normal foreign relations, foreign um, they would run on normal diplomatic relations. Um, they wouldn't run on the sort of the Twitter regime that, uh, that, that by which uh, Trump. Um, runs his foreign policy. So they would be conventional in that respect, and being conventional in that respect, they might be more responsible and they might be more uh, productive. Uh, but nevertheless, the pressure on China, I think, will remain, because that, that's a given now. That's part of, that's part of the, uh, the US political and economic landscape um, as, as sure as anything else is. Why does it matter to companies? Why, why, why are companies being, how are companies being caught up in this, in this landscape? They're, they're being caught up in it uh, chiefly because because many companies rely rely you know on China as a key part of their supply chain. So if they have to revise those supply chains uh, in the coming years, then that means cost disruption and so on and so forth. Uh, that's probably going to happen anyway. I think we're in the process of seeing that. Um, it may matter to China in the coming. It may matter less to China in the coming years. Uh, that they sustain high levels of um, exports to um, to the United States and the West. Um, simultaneously, um, U.S. companies will want to... I think the message is getting through that U.S. companies, Western companies in general, need to diversify their su- supply chains more than they have been doing in the past 30 years or so. Now, to what extent that's going to mean... Well, it, mean, it will mean less goods from China... To what extent it means more goods being produced domestically, that might be rather debatable. You know, whether those jobs will come back to Michigan and Illinois is debatable. Um, They may do, but probably not in huge numbers. More likely, the jobs which were in China would go to, more of them will go to Cambodia and Vietnam, which is where they're heading anyway. 
maybe more would go to, you know, who knows, maybe a few would end up in Africa. Um, but you're talking, you know, you're talking about change, disruption for companies, which is it's a part of life, but it's never good. It means costs, which they don't really want. Um, whether we really notice it as investors, well, we'll talk about it a lot, but, you know, whether it really will, will hit share prices in the long run. I'm not so sure. Mm, yeah, and and actually, the 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 jobs thing and bringing bringing bags to job bringing jobs back to Michigan, that point actually does read across to another, I mean, major disruption at the moment in, in the US, which is the the social and the civil unrest. And and that's having that is having implications in uh, in the financial markets as well. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we're we, you know we are an unhappy world at the moment. We're unhappy everywhere. We're unhappy in the developed world in particular. And I guess I'm not in the United States. I don't know. But one gets the impression that in the US they're particularly particularly unhappy. And that's because COVID-19 isn't behaving as it, as it should do. Um, and one of the reasons why it's not behaving as it should do, I suppose, is because it's been met by a particularly chaotic response in the White House. Um, the U.S.'s healthcare system is runs on fairly um, on federal lines, on decentralised lines, and so it's difficult for it's difficult therefore for there to be a coordinated nationwide joined up um, campaign to, uh, to to deal with COVID nineteen. This all adds to the unhappiness, uh, and we come back to the election now. We you know as we speak, uh, we feel that. Um, the effects of COVID-19 will be to 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 thrash uh, Donald Trump. Whether the situation is, is different in November, you know, it may be. People are writing off Trump at the Trump Trump at the moment. Uh, it would be nice to think so. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but you know, frankly, I think it would be. Uh, but whether it'll be the case in four months, um, we will see. But I'm less sure. Uh, well, thanks, Philip. Really good to speak to you again. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks. That's it for this week, I'm afraid. But before we leave you, let me just talk you through what else we've got in the latest issue. Boohoo is the big story in this week's mag, cropping up no fewer than five times after reports of factory troubles. The big question is whether it can live up to its ESG credentials that have seen it make its way into many ethical funds. There is news on the economic front in the form of Chancellor Rishi Sunak's summer statement, including a giveaway for the restaurant sector. Uh, But with many people still happy to eat at home, we're looking at tech disruption in the food delivery space in our news feature. We have all the usual tips, results and comments, including Simon Thompson on the hunt for recovery buys and Chris Dillow looking at gold as the yellow metal hits $1,800 an ounce. John Barron is also looking at the case for commodities in his monthly investment trust update. And we've got Phil in the education section, as well as a great look back at new deals past in our latest market history by Nalushi Karuna-Ratley. But the big story is a look at MMT by Neil Wilson and what the effects of the great government cash splurge could be. Modern monetary theory or magic money tree? Thank you to all of our guests, Mary, Phil and Philip. And of course to my co-host Megan. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week. Take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.